All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, talking to you from the Borough of Queens in New York City, as usual. This is the 29th of March, 2022. Do you like to remind you I write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks? You can sign up for that by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Uh, Chen Lin publishes a letter that I read all the time and, and think is very, very worth its price. It's uh, called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? ChenPicks.com is the place to go to sign up for that. Uh, Chen is a frequent guest on this show, maybe on again very soon. Um, and today we have Michael Oliver, and whenever he's with us, I like to remind people that his website is OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com to sign up for his very important Momentum and Structural Analysis letter, uh, one that I think um, you don't want to be without if you're a serious investor. Uh, I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel, and encourage you to send along whatever comments you have about a show to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Today's sponsors are Irving Resources, Novo Resources, El Oro Resources, Hand and Metals, Firefox Gold, Timberline Resources, Lion One Metals, and SK Mining. I've titled today's show, The Dollar Approaches Its Threshold of Lethality. Alistair McLeod, Michael Oliver, and Patrick Highsmith are today's guests. Alistair has recently pointed out that the Fed, the Bank of England, and the Bank of Japan are now themselves becoming insolvent. As interest rates rise along with surging inflation, the massive debt they purchased to stimulate their economies is declining in value, resulting in the balance sheets of those central banks themselves displaying positions of negative net worth accounts. Insolvent central bank balance sheets began to emerge before Russia invaded Ukraine. Now massive sanctions against Russia, keeping it from trading in dollars at a time when supply chain constraints may be much greater even than those created by COVID, that threatens massive shortages of essential commodities on the global markets, which in turn threatens prospects of dramatically higher inflation and a temptation on the part of central banks to print more and more faster and faster in an effort to suppress rising interest rates. That is certainly the kind of policy that can usher in hyperinflation and an increasingly worthless currency. President Biden, President Biden talks of a new world order with the U.S. leading it, but that may not be possible because creditor countries like China, not debtor countries like the United States, end up owning the world's reserve currency. The hubris of American financial and political leaders seem totally oblivious to the pathology of their massive indebtedness. 
but their arrogance won't change the laws of economics. Because America has chosen not to run, or because it has chosen to run, not to run trade surpluses, but rather to consume today with little regard for future generations, the U.S. borrowed trillions of dollars to build a superior military. And by driving interest rates down and handing out credit cards like candy to middle and lower income groups, America has basically shot its wad, and now the time has come, I'm afraid, that the piper must be paid. But for those of us who have not bought into the deceitful policies of our ruling elite, we knew a day of reckoning would arrive sometime in the future. Eventually, countries like families can't live beyond their means forever. Corporations got rich by offshoring jobs to developing low-wage countries, the largest of which is now a primary adversary of the United States. And now that country's, that country's primary ally, Russia, is playing the same nasty game the United States has played by demanding oil pay, their oil that they sell be paid for in their own currency. And like the U.S., it is using its military to try to enforce that policy. The current problem in the U.S. is, of course, exacerbated by snowflake Marxist indoctrinated recent college grads who are seeking to shut down the West's own ability to produce the lifeblood of modern society, namely oil and gas, as well as nuclear energy. Alistair will be with me in the second half of today's show to explain why attempts at resetting one kind of fiat currency system for another fiat currency system and even why Bitcoin and other fiat currencies cannot replace actual money, which is limited to gold and silver, are therefore likely to fail in, in their efforts to, do, to make uh, currency changes and currency resets. Owners of gold in the ground, like Timberline Resources, which appears to be on their way to making a significant Carlin-style high-grade gold discovery in Nevada, should be in a much stronger position than those who have put their faith in our counterfeit dollar. And Patrick Highsmith will be with me uh, to explain Timberline's exciting Eureka Gold discovery in Nevada. He'll be with me right after our first commercial break, but right now I'm happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is here. Once again, thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's good to have you. Now, I, I have to ask you, this equity market, ah, it never goes down, Michael. We have, you know, it's, we're in a, I think we're still in a bull market in equities, huh? It sure looks like it. I was listening at, at lunchtime today. There were guys on. There were guys saying, "Yeah, it's, it's time to get, jump back in there now." Yeah. On Fox Fox well, Business. <laughs> Our work argues that you've likely seen the top, and that would be late last year. Uh, then you started down, and then we had the war event. Now I've I've been in the markets for you know but roughly half a century, and so as a young kid growing up and, mm -hmm. and watching the action and. Uh, whenever people enter a trend, enter a, a trade, especially late in the trend, and and try to go based on war events, you know, uh -huh. pop up occasionally, you know, okay, um, they're usually wrong. It backfires on them. It sucks in the wrong kind of investor at the wrong time. So mm -hmm. what we had, unfortunately, for the bear side of the stock market was by the time we got into late February, we had the events in Ukraine starting to unfold, you know, mm -hmm. five weeks ago. Um, at that point, the stock market made a low, and then it repeated that low in early March, and then turned up. Okay, mm -hmm. that's when gold also made a high. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that surge in gold that we had in, into early March, late February, early March, 
which was fully technically justified. In fact, back in November, our work said that we're coming out of the congestion, we're going to go back up. Okay, mm-hmm. Well, we were starting back up, and then the war event occurred, and what happened? You had late comers probably in, uh, putting on initial positions at very mm-hmm. high levels mm-hmm. based on one assumption, war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, like it's, it's going to continue forever or whatever, all kinds of implications. Mm-hmm. Well, and they did the same thing in oil and a few other markets, and uh, they're going to pay for it. Well, they did pay for it. Gold dropped 150 bucks from its high in early March down to a low uh, a week or so ago, then rallied about 60, 70, then came down today and broke through that low. So mm-hmm. flushed it out by 10 bucks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Silver did the same type of thing. It made lows are in the uh, about 2450s a couple weeks ago, rallied back up and came down today and got to just above 24 for several mm-hmm. hours. Now it's back up, pushing to 25 again, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the sell-off that we've had in gold and silver since early in March is largely a flush-out of latecomers who are buying mm-hmm. gold for the wrong reason, mm-hmm. who bought mm-hmm. gold for the wrong reason. And if they did, and if they were sensitive and they leveraged especially, they're out. They've been flushed. Mm-hmm. Today's action certainly helped do that. Uh, and once we flush them, then I think we'd go back to normality again, meaning the larger fundamental and technical issues that are driving gold reassert themselves. Now, what's another interesting observation, if it, I think that's a correct assumption on my part, mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. the stock market has done precisely the opposite. So all those folks who are looking at GDX, the gold miners, mm-hmm. and they're looking at the stock market, they go, the stock market goes down, GDX will go down. It didn't. It went up. <laughs> it almost the same day that S&P made its low, March the 8th, low close for the S&P, GDX made a high. And the S&P's had a nice rally, and GDX has had a uh, not such a deep pullback at all, more of a congestion mm-hmm. zone. In fact, today mm-hmm. we're back above 38 again. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're less than a point from the high close of the entire surge we've seen. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's another lesson, okay? Forget this assumption that the stock market enters a bear trend, that the gold miners are going to follow, and they're not. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, war events suck in bad money, and I think we just flushed them. And I think what we're doing in the stock market is those who sold short the stock market in late February, early March, some, you know, way 500, 600 points off the high that occurred late last year, were latecomers, and they've been flushed out the other way mm-hmm. with the rally in the S&P. Uh, our short-term work suggests that you might be seeing the rally high in the S&P today or tomorrow. And likely you saw the pullback low in gold and silver today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we haven't got the full upturn yet on the short-term stuff, but it looks that way to us. Mm-hmm. So, but again, they're opposites. So uh, I think it's, it's important to keep that in mind. And I think going forward, if the S&P, for example, after this teasing rally, which if you look at a price chart, no doubt has sucked a lot of new longs in, thinking, oh, the war's over, we're going to go back to normality again. Yep. That's all I hear on the financial mm-hmm. channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that doesn't turn out to be the case, mm-hmm. and you start slipping back down again into the 4,400, 4,300 on S&P and so forth, uh, they're going to realize, uh-oh, you know, <laughs> what is this? That breakout was false. Yeah. Because on a price chart, you took out some recent highs. Not the high high, but you took out some recent highs on the S&P, and no doubt caused a lot of shorts to cover and a lot of new longs to join in. So I think there's a lot of confusion here gener- generated by that Russia-Ukraine thing. 
Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, and people wrong on both sides of the equation. Mm-hmm. So. Well, Michael, I heard one analyst uh, explain that there were a lot of fund managers, hedge fund managers, maybe uh, maybe mutual fund managers as well, that have taken a lot of, uh, have sold a lot of their equities and built their cash, but they can't be seen to hold cash at the end of the quarter, and so they're back in buying this week, that that could have been a fundamental mm-hmm. reason why the market is stronger this week. But, you know, once uh, March 31st has passed, you could look for some <laughs> yes. uh, some, some selling. So I've been thinking maybe, maybe, maybe we're going to see some weakness. But I have to ask you, with this, of course, also, we're into a higher interest rate regime, an interest rate market, and you made a call, which I've been waiting for for a long, long time. You know, many times I've asked you, you know, when are we going to have only one left safe haven, uh, that being gold? And you're sort of hinting at it. Well, you said TLT is broken. The long bond is broken. It's broken down. Do you think this is a long-term event? Yeah, I think it's a long-term event. There, there could be flash rallies in the T-bond market. Now, you've got to remember what, what maturity we're talking about. T-bond futures are 30-year, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most of the bonds that folks focus on are long-term bonds, meaning 10-year the case of the U.S., that's called 10-year notes. Yeah. In the case of Japan, it's JGBs, Japanese government bonds, or 10-year, or the bunds in Europe. Uh, now, technically, the annual momentum trend of those markets has broken down, meaning mm-hmm. price down, yields up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can even see it on some of the price charts, long-term price charts. Mm-hmm. I found an interesting event the other day. The JGB, while we're the hawkish over here, which won't last long, I don't think. But the JGB is totally dovish, and they said, we will print, we will spend unlimited, it was the word they used, amount of money <laughs> to defend the yield curve and oh buy the, t- the 10-year JGBs. Oh, my goodness. We put out a report on JGBs about a week ago showing their annual momentum trend breakage. <laughs> it was, I'm curious today to see what happened after that JGB statement, very mm-hmm. bold statement. Mm-hmm. It was lower in price than it was when we did the report, despite the fact that they declared they would spend unlimited amount of funds to support uh-huh. that market. Uh-huh. Uh, I love it when governments become impotent, okay, because yes. they created the distortion. When it comes unraveled and they can't stop it, they go into panic mode. Yeah. And effectively, well, the DOJ is already there. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's uh, so. Uh, so the market's sniffing out inflation, perhaps. I guess. Right? Yeah, and and you know the vulnerability of these debt instruments that uh, had been the alternative, like you said, another alternative for asset managers to park money in, in times of uncertainty. So over the last couple of years, it's been true. They bought T bonds at the same time they bought gold. Now that is no longer the case. Uh, you look at a T bond chart and a gold chart; they're opposites. So they've divorced. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's basically, uh, I think, gold and silver markets will be at the fore again. All right. Another uh, my... advantage of those markets. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, uh, gold and silver have had a major sideways congestion. Yes. It really has been sideways if you look at the charts. That's not true with a lot of the hot commodities. Mm-hmm. A lot of these hot commodities like oil and so forth are vulnerable for corrective or congestive processes. But gold and silver have already undergone that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they're fresh to go up again. They're mm-hmm. not extended. So I think it's, it's their time. Okay, well, let me just, uh, real quickly, Michael, you put out something a few days back on Bitcoin, or, or maybe it was just even yesterday, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're sort of suggesting if Bitcoin gets to a certain number by the end of this week, it, there may be some upside to it. 
Yeah, it's crossed uh, intermediate trend. We get, went bullish three weeks ago, um, and then we crossed some numbers that we we can call longer term trend indicators. Intra week, we've crossed them this week. I prefer to see the weekly close above those certain numbers, and so we're above them right now. But it's only Tuesday, so uh, but uh, it looks like Bitcoin's trying to trying to base and turn here. Uh, and I think this week's close may may say something, but it's it's a little early in the week for that. Uh, All right. To, to close over the key numbers as of Friday. So we'll well, see. I'm, I'm certainly watching to see what happens by the end of the week, Michael. Thank you very much for all you do. Uh, this is a good reason, folks, why you could, should consider uh, subscribing to Michael's letter. You can make money, um, and I have in the past at times done very well with Michael's work. And so I want to thank you, Michael, for spending time with us again today and uh, for your thank insights. You, They're very valuable. Very valuable. Thank you so much. Well, folks, we do have to go to break. Don't go away, but uh, because Patrick Highsmith will be with us to give us an update on Timberline Resources. Wow, it looks like they've hit into some real good Carlin-style high-grade gold mineralization. I think this is a story you're going to want to keep your eyes on this summer as the company begins drilling aggressively in Nevada. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Patrick Highsmith. Lion One Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. SK Mining Corp. Trading under the symbol ESK on the TSX Venture and ESKYF on the OTCQX is a mineral exploration company targeting precious metals, rich VMS deposits in the heart of British Columbia's Golden Triangle. SK Mining controls a prospective land package totaling 130,000 acres, which lies across a geologic trend that once hosted the prolific SK Creek Mine. With a world-renowned geological team, Funding in place and shareholders such as Eric Sprott. SK Mining is on the cusp of a world class discovery. Go to skmining.com to subscribe for updates. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have Patrick Highsmith with me once again. This time he is here to talk about Timberline Resources. He was uh, with us in January to talk about this company. It is a company with a story, an involving exploration story. I think it's very exciting. It's a Eureka project in Nevada. It's a Carlin-style target that is um, really starting to show some some great results uh, just recently with some assays, and Patrick will talk to us about that momentarily before I say hello to Patrick. I should tell you that 
that the stock trades in the United States under the symbol TLRS. Uh, TBR is a symbol in Canada, 139.7 million shares at around around U.S. 29 cents, I believe, is the latest number I've seen. It gives it a market cap, a really small market cap, which I think is very exciting, given what I think this company might be on to, $40 million in U.S. money, something like that. A uh, company does have a small resource, a lower-grade um, surface resource, uh, but uh, clearly uh, Timberline is on to something it seems to me much more exciting. So I'm really happy to say hello to Patrick. Thanks for joining me, Patrick. Well, hello to you as well, Jay. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's really good to have you here, especially looking at some of the exciting numbers that were published uh, in February and a couple more in March of this year. Really exciting. Um, yeah, we first talked to you, I think it was back in January. Well, maybe for the for the sake of those who aren't familiar, might not have heard your initial uh, interview on this on this program. Give our listeners just a sense of the project and and what you're uh, what you're looking to do there. Well, Jay, the Eureka Project is a large uh, land position on the Battle Mountain Eureka Trend mm-hmm. in Nevada. We have neighbors who are making gold, uh, McEwen Mining to the north, Caliber Mining to the southeast. We also have I eighty Gold as a neighbor in this active district. Eureka is a, a famous district, uh, Jay, because it was uh, one of the larger silver producers in the late 1800s, and that's how it got its name. And it's now about a 10 million ounce and growing Carlin-type district in which uh, Timberline is the largest uh, claim and tenement owner uh, in the district. Um, so uh, it's an exploration project to be sure. But we do have that sort of foundational resource that you mentioned, which was first reported in a, in a technical report in Canada in 2013 with that uh, half a million ounces in the measured and indicated category, mm-hmm. but at a comparatively low grade of 0.62 grams per ton. But, of course, some of that is oxide, and as you say, it comes to the surface. So there's potential in that resource, but we've been exploring – uh, to the east of that, Jay, sort of adjacent to it, and we've been drilling much higher grades in a new discovery area we call the water well zone. Uh, okay, well, let's, I guess those are where that's where those high grade numbers have come out uh, from uh, water well. Um, February twenty fourth, twenty two point nine meters, grading six point one one grams per ton gold. Uh, March 9th, 41.1 meters of five, a little over five grams of gold per ton. And then the latest one was March 24th, 44.2 meters, grading 4.1 grams of gold per ton. Are you really seeing sort of a Carlin-style mineralization with these intercepts? Jay, at Eureka, we, we've confirmed over the years that this is a Carlin-type system. And in mm-hmm. fact, there are multiple prospects where, where we've drilled gold. And of course, with the resources at a place called Lookout Mountain, we're mm-hmm. just east of that now. Across the valley, a kilometer and a half away, is another target called Oswego, where we've also identified Carlin-type gold. Now, that means we're going to see rocks like limestones, shales, dolomites. These are sedimentary rocks, and uh, the mineralization will often be uh, sort of typical of a Carlin-type mineralization is you can't see the gold. It's so-called noceum gold, Mm -hmm. but it's associated with things you can see like arsenic minerals or pyrite. Um, and uh, it does come to surface, and as it gets deeper down, very often we see a sulfide style of mineralization sort of beneath the oxide mineralization that the uh, the district was first noted for. So definitely Carlin-type mineralization, and uh, these thicknesses and grades, uh, Jay, they have – we have seen some of these similar grade and, and thicknesses uh, in the earlier days of the delineation of the lookout 
uh, resource back in 2005 and 2006. The company Staccato Gold, whom we acquired in 2010, had drilled some really good intercepts. When I was at Newmont Mining, we looked at the, that project back in those days, noted the good grades and thicknesses then, but then, uh, you know, just sort of got away from that high-grade zone, and, and now we've identified a new higher-grade zone, which is outside of the resource. This would be an addition mm-hmm. if we're successful in proving this up, Jay, mm-hmm. right next to the old resource. And as you pointed out, we've now had two core holes that have passed through thicknesses over 40 meters, mm-hmm. are continuously mineralized with, with higher-grade pockets within them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so such as, you know, like you pointed out, uh, one hole was uh, over 12 meters at, at 9.18 grams per ton. Mm-hmm. We're super excited about that. And, of course, the best hole yet drilled is, is also the southernmost hole in the water well zone. We announced this in early March, uh, hole 212C. And uh, within that 41-meter interval of 5 grams, we actually ripped into a zone that was 19.8 meters of 9.5 grams. So, mm. so really good high-grade stuff. Uh, Jay, and, and it seems to be hanging together. Mm-hmm. That, that's really the best news, Jay, is we've drilled at the far north end. We hit a high-grade interval that we've mentioned already. And now at the far south end, over 400 meters away, we've hit this 40-meter interval of, of over 5 grams with higher grade within it. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, every time we've drilled this horizon, which is at the base of a unit called the Dunderberg Shale, mm-hmm. every time we hit it, there's gold there, Jay. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes it's not economic thickness. But these intervals are very likely to be economic grade and width. And uh, really, the interval's wide open to the south uh, for over a kilometer and a half, a lot of potential there. And on the north as well, uh, we have this higher grade zone wide open to the north and northwest. So uh, we're faced with the opportunity to both sort of fill in and sort of start to drill this shape out. You know, it now has a footprint. We can kind of predict it. But we also have the opportunity to do the exciting exploration around these high grade holes and see where it goes from here, you know, to the north and south and east and west. So, uh so that's what happens in the early days of a discovery. We're, we're looking to see its footprint, and then we'll fill in that footprint and, and grow it. That's mm-hmm. that's the objective now. So you'll be doing, I guess, step-out drilling if, if you want to, along the structure that you've identified so far? Yes, exactly. It's it's complicated. I mean, these Carlin-type deposits are, uh, are just shattered with faults and mm-hmm. fractures, and those faults are the plumbing, Jay, and, yeah. and that's uh, – that's the other aspect of this recent news release I'll mention in just a minute. But so, so picture these cracks in the Earth's crust that have been the plumbing for getting these fluids in here. Mm-hmm. And when we hit high-grade intercepts, I mean 19.8 meters and 9.5 grams, <laughs> with, with assays up to 25 grams in there, you're definitely going to want to do step-outs around that pretty close to uh-huh. really nail down the high-grade. Okay, so that's one aspect of what we're going to do. And that means you might be drilling near a fault, and that'll just jumble things up, and, mm-hmm. and we'll have to drill more holes to figure out exactly where it goes. Mm-hmm. But um, but th- but those are the signs of a robust system, right? You get lots of these faults in that plumbing. And so we'll eventually we'll be chasing that to depth as well, because some of these faults can be so-called feeder zones or, mm-hmm. or the, the channels in which the highest grade are likely to be found. And and, and I guess that brings up the other aspect of this recent news release, Jay, which is that we, we had this huge geophysical anomaly just mm-hmm. east of this resource. Mm-hmm. And on the one side of it, where we're working now, we have the water well zone and the lookout resource before that. But on the other side of this IP anomaly, we have that showing 
called Oswego, mm -hmm. where we've hit some surface gold and we're still waiting on assays from a few drill holes. So right in the middle was this geophysical anomaly that suggested the rocks uh, were, were chargeable. They had electrical properties that mm -hmm. might indicate the presence of pyrite or maybe mm -hmm. graphite. Mm -hmm. And we needed to drill test that thing. And that's a real exploration hole. And we reported that hole. And it was uh, it was hole number 206. And, you know, you read through it in the press release and we describe a lot of geology and we describe some low grade gold and silver numbers over significant widths. Though, mm -hmm. Jay. So what we've now learned is that that IP anomaly appears to be a, a real feature that we can see in the rock. We've drilled down there. We hit an intrusive rock. Think of it as like a granite. Mm -hmm. uh, a very fine-grained granite. It's mm -hmm. been shattered with alteration. Uh, it, it's sort of bleached out. It kind of turned to clay in places. And there's lots of pyrite in it, mm -hmm. Jay. And around mm -hmm. the pyrite, uh, we also found this low level of gold and silver. Mm -hmm. And with that, and with that much silver, we can say pretty categorically that this intrusive is an older type of mineralization. Mm -hmm. uh, that was uh, that actually was responsible for making the Eureka District famous with all that silver lead zinc production. Mm -hmm. But there is gold there as well. And we believe that the same channel, the same plumbing uh, that that intrusive followed up into these rocks mm -hmm. could also be followed by the later Carlin type mineralization. Mm -hmm. And this is just an earmark, Jay, of these great Carlin type districts in Nevada. They have multiple uh, generations of mineralization. So here you have older lead zinc silver. Mm -hmm. uh, may or may not be of economic significance, mm -hmm. but the Carlin trend has older silver lead zinc mineralization as well, followed by the Carlin type gold later. Mm -hmm. So does the, the Archimedes mine north of us that I-80 gold is exploring. We know we have the older silver lead zinc overprinted by the younger Carlin type. And quite frankly, that, that, that silver lead zinc mineralization may also have prepared the rock to make it even a better host rock for when the Carlin-type stuff came later. So it's mostly a geological story. We put some pretty pictures in the news release, Jay, to try yeah. to explain it to people uh -huh. in, in three dimensions. We're super excited about it because we just think it opens up a lot more potential getting a little bit deeper. And uh, and in that area, we, like I said, we've got high grade just 300 meters away to the west in mm -hmm. hole 220C. Mm -hmm. So you got high grade over there and kind of a, a feeder structure down and, and an IP geophysical anomaly that we now have validated to be something real that needs, guess what, more exploration. So that uh, that anomaly, that intrusion, I guess, it, it divides the Oswego from the Lookout Mountain, if I understand properly, may or may not have economic value. But will you be, I guess, focused mostly on the Carlin style, like the water well, that and the Oswego, those areas first and foremost, or will you be putting some deep holes down into the uh, into the intrusion? Well, we're, we're absolutely going to focus and step out on these known high-grade showings sure, that need sure. delineation and what have you. Um, but, you know, our, our mutual friend, Quentin Henney, uh, boy, he can't wait to see some deep holes in that, I know. <laughs> uh, that area, Jay. And we love that, of course. Um, and in Nevada, of course, there are deep underground mines mining very high-grade material. That potential is always there. But really, if you look at it in one of our cross-sections there in the press release, the mm -hmm. symmetry is kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. we, we've hatchered in red some of the potential areas that we'll be drilling for gold around this thing. And, and, and that symmetry sort of says, well, there's, there's a system here, and it's wide now. It's, you know, it's over a kilometer and a half wide. This anomaly is over two kilometers long. So in that huge volume, we could fit a lot of gold. And uh, if there happens to be some high-grade silver lead zinc down there, well, fantastic. We'll, yeah. we'll drill that too. But, uh, but yeah, it's about really the, how this system got here 
and what its shape is and where are the sweet spots within it, Jake. How well funded are you and, and can you talk a little bit about your drill program going forward? You know, we've uh, there's been a great response to this news, Jay, and we're in a much stronger position with our share capital than we have been. It was interesting. Our drill program went into the fall and winter instead of the summer. So mm-hmm. our news flow didn't really begin until February, as, mm-hmm. you, as you said. So we had these sort of doldrums and we're really happy to see the share price has moved up. The budget of last year's program and, our, and Steve Osterberg, our VP expiration, his delivery of that was fantastic. We came in under budget. So our goal was to leave uh, a million U.S. in the bank when we were done with all this work. And we've, we've more than done that. And we also have some warrants that are in the money that are being exercised now. And so that means our treasury is is fine for this interim period before we start drilling again. No need to finance immediately. And we've gotten the share price to a much better position to finance. But we are planning a robust program, Jay. And quite frankly, let's just say we're preparing multiple budgets for sort of multiple scenarios. Um, But one of the first things we'll be doing is a little bit of core drilling to sort of confirm these these high-grade intercepts compared to some previous reverse circulation drilling that we've done in the area which returned lower grades. Right. So we're going to investigate that a little bit more. The core drilling seems to be yielding much better grades than the RC, and we want to confirm that a little bit and queue up a sizable program uh, for the summer and into the fall, too. But probably that would require a financing. And, of course, uh, we don't spend money we don't have, so uh, we're, we're really happy to see the market embracing this news, and we probably do have some work ahead of us here to cash up before we drill uh, a big program. Yeah, I think it's important for and people listening to this program to know that management has skin in the game. I think I saw, Patrick, something like 20% or so of the shares are held by management. Does that sound right? Yeah, board and management together mm-hmm. um, is a little over 20%, I believe. Prescott Capital is our is our next biggest shareholder. They're somewhere in the teens. They're a significant shareholder, maybe 13 or 15%, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and very supportive uh, shareholder as well. So, yeah, the, you know, Timberline's been around for a long time, and and uh, they got financed through this downturn, and, and Bill Batlack, one of our directors, was a, a big supporter uh, and financier of the company, and that's one way the board accumulated so many shares. So we've definitely got a skin in the game here and a team that's committed to uh, to realizing what we think will be a big discovery in the Eureka District. Boy, it sure looks promising. I'm excited about it, I must say. It is, a, of course, a recommendation in my newsletter. I own shares personally. It is a sponsor to this show, and I'm really proud to, to have it as such. Uh, uh, anything else, Patrick, before we wrap it up today? Well, I just want to say stay tuned. We've got uh, one more round of drill results to come that will oh, okay. come in April. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy, the labs are busy, as you know, Jay, and yep. some of those didn't get in the lab till February. So we'll have assays in April on the Oswego zone, which we had a great press release about in December. So stay tuned to that and, and look forward to our plans. We expect to be very active in Eureka. And, of course, what a great place. Uh, if you're going to find high-grade gold, and uh, even if it's sulfide mineralization, like this, Jay. If you're going to find high-grade gold, uh, Nevada's a great place to do it. Absolutely. The infrastructure is there. Um, Patrick, I'm really excited. Thank you so much for being with us today and explaining this story, and we'll look forward to it uh, to more good drill results in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks, uh, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Alistair McLeod will join me to talk about the danger the dollar may be facing in terms of its world reserve currency status. Very important to Americans, very important to all of us. Uh, so stick around and hear uh, what Alistair has to say right after the break.
Timberline Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship Eureka Project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm pleased to have Alistair McLeod with me once again. Alistair writes a very important and fundamentally sound financial commentary every week titled Gold Money Insights. It is posted every Thursday on the research page at goldmoney.com. His views are based largely on free market economics, but Alistair is certainly not a rigid ideologue. He is a free thinker who examines the world as it actually exists, not as Keynesian economists think it ought to exist. And as such, he is very much in tune with Austrian economic theory, which, in my view, most closely exhibits the economic actions of free human beings. And that is why I'm always pleased to have Alistair with me. He's here once again, and thank you so much for joining me, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. It is always good to have you. Uh, we just so many, so many things to talk to you about. So let's get going. I have to ask you about the end of fiat hoving into view was the title of your March 10th missive. Uh, can you define the word hoving as it's used in that title? <laughs> yes, I suppose coming into view, as it were. Um, ah, I, I, I didn't realize. Uh, you know, perhaps um, my vocabulary is a little old-fashioned. But anyway, <laughs> I do apologize for that. I don't know if it's old-fashioned or not. It's just a British uh, saying, I think, more. Probably not old-fashioned in, in Britain so much. It's just something I wasn't used to hearing, and so uh, coming into view would be more like it, I guess. The end of fiat uh, money coming into view, I guess, is, is what you meant. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in, in that article, you stated the following, and I quote once again. I think I read this quote last time we talked. Putin made a huge mistake invading Ukraine, but the West's reaction by seeking to isolate Russia and its commodity exports from the global marketplace is an even greater one. Now, two and a half weeks or so passed since we last spoke. Do you still believe that more or less? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think I think events have rather confirmed that view. And um, of course, the effect of this has been to drive up commodity prices. So what Russia has lost in terms of sales volume, they've made up on price and they can afford to sell oil, for example, at a substantial discount to their friends. Um, and the amount of oil and gas that they sell to uh, Europe is actually a very large quantity in terms of money. Uh, and um, I really do think that 
this move to uh, say, I mean, basically what Putin has done is he's invoked a force majeure clause, which I'm sure is in all the contracts, all the oil and gas contracts, uh-huh. um, uh, to, um, you know, change the currency in which he's paid. And he's gone taking it back to rubles, which basically means that, um, you know, over the course of a year, a very large amount of rubles will have to be bought I think we're looking at about two and a half trillion euros. Uh, sorry, um, uh, not euros, rubles. Mm-hmm. Um, will will have to be bought in order to pay for essential um, oil and uh, essential uh, natural gas. And um, that is it's a very, very clever move. Um, it is exactly what um, President Nixon and uh, Kissinger did with the Saudis back in mm-hmm. 1973 and that created the petrodollar. And it meant that everybody had to buy dollars in order to pay the Saudis and every other member of OPEC. Uh, I mean, very smart move then. And it's the same playbook. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, actually, you could make the case that Russia, with its population, uh, is a more legitimate uh, country to own the petrodollar or petrocurrency than the U.S. Because the U.S. had to go around, well, we produced oil and gas at that time, but we had... We really got the Saudis, the big oil producers, to back up. We we told them, you know, we made the arrangement that they they had to buy, they had to sell their oil uh, in dollars, and and of course, countries all around the world that had to be net export, ec- net importers of oil had to go out and buy dollars. So that is really what made the world's the U.S. own the world's reserve currency after Nixon took us off the gold standard, right? And so, do you think? Do you think anybody's taking Putin up on this? Because the Germans come right out and said, "No way, uh, you got to honor your contract. We're not. We don't have any contracts uh, to just that we have to give you uh, that we have to pay pay for it in uh, in in uh, your currency." Well, I can understand that political reaction, but the reality yeah. is that every contract has a force majeure clause, and uh, basically, what's happened is that the Western um, nations, uh, including the buyers of this oil themselves, the EU, have turned round and changed the whole thing. So, uh, the Russians, as far as I can see, are per- perfectly entitled to, to you mm-hmm. know. To, to, to respond by saying, right, we want payment in rubles. And if we mm-hmm. don't get paid in rubles, no oil, no gas. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, mm-hmm. that is the choice. And uh, what it would mean is that uh, uh, the European, the EU nations would then have to scramble to get what they can from other sources. Uh, and there is not a lot of, um, uh, if you like, sort of flexibility in the whole system. So that means that they would probably have to bid up oil and gas. Uh, and um, okay, uh, Russia would end up exporting less, if you like, outside mm-hmm. Russia, um, but they would still be exporting um, increased quantities in through China, India, and so on and so forth, who are prepared to take uh, Russian oil and gas at a discount. I mean, so. You know, it's uh, the Russians are just sort of sitting there saying, well, you know, you got the problem, mate. You created the problem. All right, we, we invaded mm-hmm. the new Ukraine. But, you know, basically, you've shot yourselves in the foot. And that actually I, is, is pretty well what the West has done. Mm-hmm. Oh, it seems so. I mean, I, I'm sure the U.S. will try to do what it can to, uh, I, I think it's trying to send some, you know, liquefied natural gas over there and all, all that sort of thing. But I, I don't imagine that we can come close. 
of course, as we come into the summer, maybe it's not as important as during the winter, but uh, air conditioning and things like that, too, I suppose, in the more advanced countries anyway, will be will be important. Uh, Alistair, to what extent do you think this is do you think this is a bigger deal in terms of um, supply chain disruptions than the covid 19 thing or, or similar or what, what are your thoughts? Well, yes, I mean, it is a disruption. Um, but I mean, talking about supply chains, I, I think they're bigger disruptions in China. I mean, they've just shut down virtually the whole of Shanghai <laughs> over, over COVID. China is still following this policy of just shutting everything down yes. as soon as there's a hint of COVID. And that is just that's not doing anyone any good at all. Um, and the Chinese economy itself um, has pretty much stopped growing. And, um, you know, that has been the engine, the production engine for the world. So um, I think that's probably more important in terms of supply chain than Russia, though there's no doubt about it that uh, the Western sanctions uh, are disrupting uh, basic commodity supplies. I mean, particularly energy, also mm -hmm. other commodities like fertilizer. Um, we face, uh, as a world, we've, we're going to face a very difficult summer because, um, you know, the, the uh, um, Ukraine region and also that part of Russia is the breadbasket of Europe. Mm -hmm. um, it's also a massive producer of fertilizer, which means that uh, countries which would look to perhaps try and maintain their grain yields over the summer uh, are going to find it extremely expensive to do so because of the lack of fertilizer. Um, I mean, I really do worry about uh, the potential for starvation, uh, particularly in the third world. And um, with that, I mean, particularly in places like Africa. And again, China has cornered the grain market. I mean, you've got 20% of the world's population in China who have roughly 70% of the world's wheat um, uh, um, uh, reserves. I mean, I mean, sort of, you know, in, uh, stocked up, weak stocks. Um, rice stocks, similar. Maize stocks, similar. Soy, I think, is something like 30%. Um, and this is leaving everybody else very, very short. I can tell you this summer is going to be uh, one of hunger um, and possibly worse for mm. an awful lot of people. Mm. It's a very sobering thought. Uh, I, I would imagine uh, with China's economy slowing down, the, the only thing they know to do is what every other sort of central bank does around the world, and that's just print money. Um, the Chinese will do that. I mean, they can't have they can't have civil unrest. I mean, that's they've got to try to avoid that, right? And Michael was just saying also that uh, the uh, the uh, Japanese central bank uh, is saying that they're going to print whatever it takes, as much money as it needs, to try to to keep their their yield curve intact. I mean, it's yep. it's just craziness everywhere. What do everybody? Biden's come out with a five point, well, I don't know, five point three or five point eight trillion dollar budget. I mean, it's just in, it's just running amok. It's almost exponential. It's this nonsense. Yes, it's, it's completely out of control. I do agree. Um, uh, about China, which was your first point. Yeah. Uh -huh. China recognised the inflationary um, effects of uh, the Fed's policy back in March 2020 when it reduced yeah. interest rates to zero and instigated 120 billion a month of QE. And right. it really from that moment that China started stockpiling. Um, 
the uh, commodities and raw uh -huh. materials and food which uh, she deemed necessary to protect her own people from from these uh, this the inflationary effect and consequently uh, prices in china are rising they reckon on sort of cpi terms around about one percent per oh. annum mm -hmm. you know they're so very different from the west they've been quite sensible now they do have a property crisis uh, and they're trying to deal with it by expanding credit so they're trying to um, if you like, sort of, you know, soften the landing, as it were. But you're not really seeing uh, the inflationary policies that we have, see in the West. Your second point about the banking of, of Japan. The Bank of Japan has a huge problem, which is shared by other central banks. And that is, it is now in negative equity. And what I mean by that is its liabilities exceed its assets. Now, the reason this has happened is because it has got an enormous uh, amount of Japanese government bonds, uh, corporate bonds, and also even equities on its balance sheet. And these are collapsing in value. I mean, particularly the bond portfolio um, is just uh, really um, in, in an awful mess. And um, it cannot afford to see higher uh, bond yields. And so it is desperately trying to put a cap on it. It's been trying to buy the 10-year JGB on a yield of 0.25%. It's it's still in negative interest rates. Mm. It cannot afford. I mean, it's it's just got, got got completely caught. So we have a situation where the the Jap uh, where the Japanese central bank is bust, and not only that, but the underlying um, uh, big Japanese banks are leveraged on a basis of asset to to uh, uh, balance sheet equity over 20 times. I mean, you know, a rise, rising yields in the bond markets are undermining the commercial banking network and the central bank itself. This is a major crisis. And this is why we're seeing the, uh, uh, the Japanese yen, the Japanese yen tanking. I mean, it's, it's, it's falling. It's just a John yes, Rawls yes. situation all over again, which I know we've talked about in the uh -huh. past. Yes. Yes, well, it, and the Japanese central bank isn't the only one. You point out as well the Fed and the Bank of England also have negative rates. And the, you pointed that out, and rates have risen quite a bit. At least U.S. Treasury rates have risen a lot since then. So I would presume that we're more negative than we were when you first made that comment a couple of weeks ago. Yes, that's absolutely true. And the one that's really worrying um, – I mean, I can see how a central bank gets rescued. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's easy. Uh, you, I can, you know, I won't go into the details. It's actually mm -hmm. relatively simple to happen. It, it just involves the government basically, um, you know, borrowing money from the central bank on the one side and depositing it back on the other uh, uh -huh. in the form of equity. So that's, that's easy. That's easy. But it's damned embarrassing. I mean, you, yeah. know, you yeah. don't want to have to do this in the middle of a financial crisis. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The ECB is in a terrible situation. The ECB itself is in negative equity big time. It's got the same problem as the Japanese. We're on negative interest rates and it cannot afford to raise interest rates because it is seeing the value of its enormous portfolio, which it's got on board, just collapsing. So it's trying to sit on the interest rate situation. On top of that, its shareholders who would come to its rescue are the national central banks. Mm -hmm. And guess what? They're all in negative equity as well. And you have a situation where the commercial banking network has got um, uh, liabilities into Russia and Eastern Europe and goodness knows what. 
It's an absolute mess. And they're leveraged over 20 times on the basis of asset to equity. So you've got you've got the commercial banks going bust. You've got the national central banks going bust and you've got the ECB going bust. How do you resolve that one? I don't know. I mean, that's uh, what who knows? Uh, maybe uh, I'm just wondering here, Alistair, if we have a flattening of the yield curve here in the U.S., uh, it's that's pretended in, uh, recession in the past, almost it's almost perfect uh, in its prediction of it. Might we see a collapsing or say a, a, de- a recessionary, if not depressionary, U.S. economy and maybe around the world, and so rates fl- rates uh, just plunge again? I've I mean, been watching. Yeah, I've been watching this commentary um, uh, with great interest because, um, you know, if you've got a situation where, you know, let's say sort of price inflation rises at the end of the credit cycle and uh, then you sort of, um, you know, end up going into a recession and so on and so forth. Yes, the yield curve does uh, forecast, if you like, the recession. And basically what happens is that you find that the short-term rates are higher than the long-term rates. Mm-hmm. The long-term rates are telling you that that uh, you're going into the recession. This is different. This is very, very different because what is happening is that everybody is trying to adjust to a situation where um, we've got hugely negative yields the whole way along the, 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 the yield curve and those negative yields are getting worse. I mean, I know we've seen uh, the 10-year yield rise to 2.5%. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you, you know, I mean, when you've got a situation where, um, uh, you know, CPI inflation is running at, what, 8%, something like that? Yeah, I mean, we've yeah, right. got negative yields of over 5% at the moment, yes. and that's on official numbers. So this, you know, the I, I think what's happened is that the long end just hasn't actually caught up with events. And um, you're going to see... Um, a negative yield curve, fine, you know, going for some considerable time, but the whole t- thing is going to shift. And I would not be surprised to see the 10-year yielding well over 5%, um, maybe within uh, the next three months or so, uh, and uh, at the long end, not too far behind. So I think this is a fundamentally different situation from uh, saying that, uh, you know, a negative yield curve uh, is a pretty good indication of, um, you know, a recession. Actually, what we've got now is I think we've got runaway uh, prices, price inflation, because we've had runaway monetary inflation. Right. So will they try to outrun that by printing more and more, faster and faster, exponential rise in monetary like the Japanese uh, central bank is doing? Or is this a, sort of a runaway hyperinflationary event that we see staring at us? I think it's quite likely. I mean, the Fed has got a choice on this one. And basically, um, I think their mandate is to keep the system going, which basically means they've got to rescue everything. And uh, the only way you rescue everything is by trashing the currency. And this is what's happening in Japan at the moment. I think Japan uh, is leading the way. Um, you know, I mean, we we're talking about uh, the end of fiat hoving in into sight. Japanese is the, the Japanese yen is leading the way. I thought it would be the ECB, but this is a race you don't want to win. Race um, to the bottom. Yeah, ECB. I think I think the uh, euro is next, and then after that, I think that um, I mean, you know, this is likely to push money into dollars, into some Swiss francs, whatever. Um, you know, fleeing these two currencies. So you've got this brief situation, I think, which means a stronger dollar, stronger Swiss franc 
even possibly a slightly stronger sterling. Um, and then uh, I think that the, the plagues that are hitting, the financial plagues that are hitting the yen and then the ECB, the euro, I think will begin to infect us all. Uh, with just about a minute and a half or so left here, I know that uh, the currency reset is something that Jim Rickards and a lot of other people have been talking about. You, uh, in your last piece, really sort of are suggesting there's no real way to go from one fiat currency to another now, if I read you right, believing that we need to go towards, a, I don't know if you think it's inevitable, uh, towards some sort of a monetary, some sort of a stable monetary system based on silver and gold, and I'm just wondering, with Russia's move towards demanding payment of oil in petro or in rubles, if this might be the start of something like that. Well, it could evolve into that. A lot of people have sort of been, you know, gold bugs have been excited by the, um, you know, sort of. Uh, the central bank will buy gold at 5,000 rubles uh, a gram. Um, but that's yeah. basically to ensure that the gold mining industry can continue to be financed. Uh -huh. uh, that's what that's about. It's not about uh, you and me turning uh -huh. up in Moscow with our, with our ruble notes and saying, please, want to cash it in for gold. No, it's yeah. in fact the other way around. But yeah. anyway, apart from anything else, it's, it's not a gold standard. But there is no doubt in my mind that they are setting the pace, if you like, for the destruction of the Western fiat currency system. Mm -hmm. And we can't reset it. I mean, the governments can't reset it. It's got to be the people that do it. And I think what happens is that eventually governments have to accept that they, they, the only way they can stop their currencies going to zero is to turn them into credible gold substitutes. And wow. that is the answer at the end of the day. Um, All right. So there we are. Yeah, we'll have to leave it go at that. We're out of time, Alistair. Thank you so much for spending time with us again and uh, sending along your insights your insights to all of these very complex issues. Uh, and folks, go to read Alistair's missives every Thursday at uh, goldmoney.com. Uh, Thank you, Alistair. All right. Well, folks, uh, that is it for this week. Next week, Tavi Costa and Kevin Smith of Crescat Capital will be with us. And Patrick Highsmith, Highsmith will be back uh, to talk this time about Firefox Gold. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Firefox Gold is exploring in Finland in the midst of an exciting new gold rush. Firefox successfully drilled high-grade and visible gold in 2021 and is now active at four prospective projects with plans to drill continuously through the first half of 2022. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, are driving the company to discovery, and the stage is set for Firefox to identify multiple new gold deposits. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX and on the OTCQB at FFOXF. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates.